0: I'd like you to turn in your Bibles back to the book of Romans chapter 12. Uh, We're going to conclude this chapter this morning, which has important things to say about life in the body of Christ and encouragements to commitments that we ought to have in our relationship with the church. Romans chapter 12, and I want us to begin reading in verse 14 this morning. Romans chapter 12, and let's begin reading in verse 14. The word of the Lord says this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Don't repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. All right, the the, the thrust of this text, I think, is found in verse 18. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. When I do premarital counseling, uh, one of the things that we talk about in the very first session is the topic of expectations. Uh, And if you've been married for a while, you know why that discussion takes place. Expectations are the mental picture of how we will live and react and serve in our new relationship of marriage, okay? So expectations are a mental picture of how things will be. They're not bad in and of themselves, but they often differ from reality, okay? What we expected and what we experience tend to at times look different. And it's not that there isn't a lot of joy in marriage, just that there's other stuff that comes up in human relationships that affects our view of things. This text, I think, says something like this. It is important to have realistic expectations, it, not only in relationships in the context of the body of Christ, but at large. And the, the, the key, I think, to kind of getting things back to where they should be, is becoming good at conflict resolution. And so one of the main topics that we'll talk about in the context of premarital counseling, we'll do a full session on how to resolve conflict. We probably should do four or five weeks on the topic of how to resolve conflict. Why? It's part of the road. It's part of human relationships. It's part of what we experience. I think the key to understanding this in the context of church life is to understand that there is no perfect church. There are no perfect Christians. And so along the way, what happens? There's hurt. There's times where there's injury. There's times where there's struggles relationally. And we need to press into God and ask God to give us wisdom and how to be at peace with each other. Because sin tears at the fabric of the church. Sin destroys the unity of the church. And the Spirit of God says, be at peace with one another. Learn how to get along with each other in your marriage. Get along in your home life with your children. Learn how to be at peace with each other at work. Learn from this text how to become an individual who perceives or pursues peace. And you'll notice as we go through this text that it's going to move from outside the church... To relationships inside the church. And then back to relationships outside the church. So that this discussion on being a person who is a peacemaker. Being at peace with others. Pursuing it. Or is a discussion that doesn't relate to just what happens here. It's a discussion that relates to the entirety of our experience as children of God. So the thrust, the proposition of this text. Be at peace in your relationships. And the question I want to ask to the text is this. How can I. Be a peacemaker. How can I be a person who goes hard after good, solid, peaceful relationships with others? So let's begin in verse 14. Verse 14 says this. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Fascinating statement. Can I say this? Everything just about that we're going to look at this morning is contrary to your natural tendency. All right, this text is going to call you very strongly to do hard things. It's going to call you to respond in ways that, aren't, that are not instinctive. Okay, when you're wrong, what's your instinctive response? To wrong back, right? We call it tit for tat, right? You do this, I do that. You do that louder, I do it louder. You do it harder, I do it harder. It's it's our our natural tendency, things ramp up and then you end up with these blazing conflicts in places where you never expected them. And they break your heart. So the first encouragement that Paul gives us in helping us to pursue peace is this. And and all these flow out of biblical love. So the the first thought is this. True love chooses to be a blessing in the face of, of injury and the word chooses will become an important word in this statement. Okay, true love, biblical love, sincere love that is the foundation of this text from verse 1. Paul says, Let love be sincere, let it be true and genuine. What does true love do in the place, in the, in the place of injury? It chooses to be a blessing. Now, fascinating in this verse, the injury is called persecution. Okay, which means what? It's likely that what is coming against these individuals is premeditated. It's not a mistake. It's not an oops. Which is often what we're experiencing. Paul's ramped it up. Bless those who persecute you, who plan to do you harm and injury. So that this text is not finding the person that annoys me to be the object of love here. A person I'm just slightly irritated with. No, this is the person who intentionally comes against with intent. Paul's response is this, don't curse them. Okay, what is a curse? A curse is, and this word, it's not a curse word, it's more of a, of a statement to bring down the wrath of God upon them, to call for judgment to fall on their head. God rain fire on them, kind of like what the disciples do in the Gospel of Luke. They say to Jesus when they're rejected, should we call down fire from heaven? Right, And Jesus says, no, you should love them. Not the normal response. Don't curse them. That's in stark contrast to my knee-jerk reaction. That's in contrast to how I want to respond when I'm wrong. On Friday, I was at a gas station to get gas. You ever had that situation happen? You pull up and you're trying to see that it was full and there was one spot. And I pulled up and I said, oh, if I pull around here and back in... I'll get the spot I want. So what did I do? I turned around and in my mirror, what did I see? I saw a red car pulling behind me. I said, "You know, I know what they're going to do." And in my heart, what did I say? You know, they probably have more important things to do today than I have to do. (laughs) Right? Maybe maybe the guy's wife's in the car and she's, you know, has prematurely, uh, you know, going into labor. I don't know. (laughs) I heard someone's late for a haircut can't have that. No. I had an, in my heart, I had to, fortunate to come out verbally, I had a, an instinctive negative response towards someone getting ahead. Getting over. They, I was wrong. They stopped and waited for me to back in. Paul then goes, he says this, don't curse. Knee-jerk response but bless them. And folks, he isn't saying be passive. Okay, just okay, she pulled in your spot, he pulled in your spot. That's okay, just don't do anything. He's saying bless them. You know what bless means? It means to call down favor from God. Isn't that what Jesus does on the cross? When the intentional plan of the Pharisees against him cost him his life, pain and suffering, what did he do? He said, "Father, Forgive them. He called down from Father in Heaven blessings on the head of those who were raging against Him and had planned from the beginning of the Gospel of Mark to the end to take His life. But Paul says, true love chooses and determines to be a blessing in the face of injury. It calls down the favor of God. That's what prayer does, doesn't it? It longs to see the blessing of God fall on others. But here Paul says, bless those that persecute you. Pray that God would pour his favor into their life. It's not what I want to do. It's not my natural tendency. And I think this text is reflecting on what Jesus says in the gospel of Luke chapter 6. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples. I tell you who hear me, love your, what's the next word? Enemies. Love those that have determined willfully to injure and harm you. Do good to those that hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. That's not natural. I don't read that verse and say, oh God, that's what I want to be. But My response should be what? I can't do it. That's what Jesus says at the end of this passage, right? He says, you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Which should cause us to say what? God, to do that, I need your help. I need to know a love by experience that astonishes me and transforms me. That's what Romans 5.5 is saying, isn't it? The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Spirit. And what does it do? It makes us peacemakers. Why? Because the love that is being shed abroad is being shed abroad to a rebel, to someone who deserves hell. And what do we get? We get the promise of heaven. And folks, please understand, this is towards enemies. This is towards intentional hurt, which means that our response should be so much kinder towards the injuries and wounds that we receive from people around us through forgetfulness or in whatever it is. Here he, Paul reaches very far under the inspiration of the Spirit But he calls us to a a life that must be empowered by the Spirit. See, the call of Jesus to love your enemies, to bless those that curse you, it should humble you and drop you to your knees. It shouldn't say, okay, I'll do that. Our flesh should be humbled by these statements. Simply say and agree with Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, sincere love. That love for enemies has to be prompted by and driven by a work of God in our hearts. Because here's the truth. In my flesh, I can give good for good. You do me good, I got no problem doing you good. You do me wrong in my flesh, I have no problem letting you have it back. I don't. I don't need any supernatural help to love someone who loves me. I need help. To love people that injure me and wound me and let me down. And that is what the Apostle Paul is teaching the church in this text. Love those who persecute you. Don't curse. Call down blessings from God. A text that is absolutely contrary to my natural instincts and requires the power of the Spirit. Blessing opponents is a Spirit-born activity and practice amongst believers. Secondly, verses 15 to 16. How do we pursue peace? Rejoice with those that rejoice. And mourn with those that mourn. And I want you to notice in the middle of verse 16, it says, don't be proud. End of verse 16, don't be conceited. Okay, what's this text saying? Okay, I think this is, it is this. True love is not jealous. It's empathetic. When people struggle, what does it do? It takes the sorrows of others and makes them its own. Isn't that what Jesus did? On the cross, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. He took our rebellion, our rejection, our sin, and poured it out upon himself. Paul says, when people are in sorrow, let their sorrow be your sorrow. Enter in, empathize with them. Enter in. And when people are rejoicing, enter in with them in their joy. And here's the question. Which is harder? Which do you find more difficult to Sorrow with those that sorrow, to put aside your happy moment in order to enter in and become a burden bearer with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or do you find it easier to rejoice with those that rejoice? Right, if you watched the NCAA tournament game in the Elite Eight last Sunday, the game between Duke and Louisville, okay, how many of you saw that game? How many have heard of what happened to the one player in the game, the guy that broke his leg? Okay. This guy, uh, I think his name, where? That's it. I was trying to think. Of, I couldn't remember his, uh, his first name. Jumped up the block, a shot, passed by the gentleman, never made contact, landed, and doubly compound fractured his leg. Okay? When, you, when they showed the replay, which they shouldn't have shown, but they didn't know even what they were looking at yet because they replayed it instantly, you could see every player on the bench physically turned back and some of them actually fell off the back of their chairs because it happened right in front of his own team. Some literally vomited. It was that much of a shocking situation. Grown men, in one of the most important moments of their life, weeping. Okay? They didn't think about that. They just sorrowed with the one who was sorrowful. I wonder if Mr. Ware had gotten a phone call from the NBA that day saying, after today's game, we want to draft you into the NBA. Or if Mr. Ware that day won the MVP, if his teammates would have found it as easy to rejoice with one rejoicing than to sorrow with one sorrowing. You understand the question? Do you find it easier to rejoice with those that rejoice or to weep with those that weep? For me, I find weeping with people, entering into their sorrow, into their trouble with compassion is much easier than saying, you know what? I'm so glad they got that blessing. I I am. Okay? But there's part of me that isn't as into that. Why? Because what are we thinking? Yeah. Okay? In our pride, which he goes on to address then in verse 16, and in my conceit, what am I thinking? I'm not so sure they deserve that blessing. <laughs> right? And what am I really thinking? Why didn't I get that? That's, what, that's, the, that's the piece of, you know, stuff in your shoe that's bothering you, the grit off the side of the road when I'm jogging. That's, that's what's really bothering us. The call to rejoice with those that rejoice is a hard call. And to sorrow with those that sorrow, because you know what? I don't want my life interrupted by pain. It takes the work of the spirit to be happy when other people are blessed, when a coworker enjoys a promotion that you know they don't deserve. Like you really know it. You know what God says? Rejoice with those that rejoice. And 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 he's just strongly encouraged us, us in the ups and downs of life not to be jealous. Because what happens? That subtle grain that settles into Yeshua and that causes irritation and and a sense of of, of pride and why is my life like this and their life like that. You know what it does? It kills peace. It will fray the edges of your life and make you breakable. And so Paul challenges us here. Don't be proud. Be willing to associate with people of all different circumstances. Pride kills this mutual care. You see, what is the church? The church is a mutual company. You know what mutual companies do? Mutual of Omaha is the one that came to my mind over and over. Couldn't think of anybody else. You know what mutual companies do? They share their profits and their losses. Everything is experienced by everyone that has a part or share in the company. That is what is to be true in the body of Christ. That we become people who fight against pride so that we can have a mutual concern and love for each other. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, But as God has combined the members of the body, the church, and has given greater honor to parts that lacked it, so that there would be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And that's the call of God. That's... Not easy for us to do. Because we wrestle with sometimes a spirit of pride. Life focused on me. We can become jealous thinking that we deserve it. We can become self, self-preoccupied because what don't we like? We don't like when the attention is taken off of us. And it's put on someone else. You know what grace does? The grace of God poured into your life destroys pride. And enables you. It gives you the strength. To be empathetic. With all kinds of people. Verse 16 tells us how to overcome this pride. It says this. Be willing. Second half of the verse. Be willing to associate. With people of low position. And the translation here is something like this. Be willing to do low things. And be willing to serve people that are in low positions. Or circumstances. Okay there's a. And, and the idea of the word is be carried away with. Devote yourselves to rejoicing with those that rejoice and weeping with those that weep. In other words, throw yourself into it. Don't be reluctant to show the love of Christ. Pour it out just as God in Jesus has loved you. And As I, as I studied through this, I thought, does Jesus weep with those that weep and rejoice with those that rejoice? Okay, and I, I thought of the weeping part most. John 11, verse 35. Jesus comes upon the tomb where his friend Lazarus is dead. When he sees the tomb and he sees the the, the love of Mary and Martha, here's what the Bible says. Jesus wept knowing that he was going to bring victory over death for Lazarus that hour. And what does he do? He enters into the circumstance. He is not proud in the sense of, hey, I'm here to do a great miracle. It's all about me. You know what he did? He humbled himself. And wept. And then acted in his incredible power. And folks, if Jesus can empathize, can identify with others and not be jealous of them. Then that's, I believe, is what we ought to do. And it's why in Philippians 2, Paul says, have this mind in you that was in Christ. That knew what it was to rejoice with those that rejoiced. And knew what it was to weep with those that weep. Who was... Literally carried along by the struggles of the lowly. It drove him. The woman of Samaria, a man like Zacchaeus. Jesus was a man who moved from the inside as a rabbi to the outside, from up to down. He knew what it was to empathize with others. You know why? Because there was not a shred of pride in the person of Christ. Would you not love to be done with pride? Center of the word, I. Conceit. Life's about me. What about my needs? And Jesus moves our focus in a different direction in this text. Verses 70 to 21 then. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Beginning of verse 19. Do not take revenge, my friends. All right? What's the... What's the thrust of these verses as we move through the end of the text? I think the first thrust is this. True love does not seek revenge. But it leaves the results with God. True love does not seek revenge. So two words. One in verse 17, don't repay. One in verse 19, don't take revenge. What is it? It is a categoric prohibition. Okay? Don't take revenge. Things into your own hands. Don't try to settle accounts. Don't settle scores. Why? Jesus didn't. He bore it silently. Is that not true? Is that not really one of the most amazing things about Jesus? God in flesh. Wrestling through the vindictiveness and the revengeful attitudes of humanity. Not focused on himself, but focused on others. So what's the thrust here of not seeking revenge? The word literally means don't retaliate. Okay, now, what's natural to us? What's natural to us, if if, if you wound me and injure me, you can probably expect something coming back your direction. Okay, it's that give and give kind of mindset. One famous individual once said this, don't get mad, get even. Okay, that... I didn't have to memorize that. <laughs> I didn't have to learn what that meant. I know what that means. In my flesh, I know. I know what it is. When injured, t- t- I just... It can happen in your closest relationships. Building walls and, and, and boxes of resentment that become prisons. God in the gospel aims to shatter those things. Why does Paul say no tit for tat? Why does he say... Don't go down this road of of not getting mad, but getting even. Why does he say it? He says it because it never ends. Okay, there is no end to that road of payback. It just continues to escalate until there is devastation. Ultimately, in countries and in certain personal relationships, what happens? Death. It's the end of this road. So strongly, he says to us, don't retaliate. Make a choice to love. Feelings of revenge should be eliminated by knowing what? God, in the end, makes all things right. That's the thrust of this text. Don't take revenge. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, verse 18 says, as far as it depends on you, brother and sister in Christ, as far as it depends on you, you be at peace with all men. Now, what's true? What's true is this. You can be the most peaceable person on the planet and find struggle and tension in your life. That's the truth. Okay, if you say, give me an example. Jesus Christ is the example. A man who lived an unbelievably selfless life and yet endured what? Contradiction of sinners against himself, Hebrews twelve two says. says. Right, so what's the call? As far as it depends on you, for your part, You be at peace, Christian. Why? Because you know the Prince of Peace. You know the person who at the end is going to get the record straight. So be at peace. Reality, it's not always possible to be at peace with everybody. We understand that. But what is Paul saying? Paul's saying, don't be part of the problem. In Matthew 5, and verse 9, what did Jesus say? Jesus said this, blessed are the peacemakers. Happy. You know what a peacemaker is? A peacemaker is a person who is offended but doesn't respond fist for fist, shove for shove. That's what a peacemaker is. Here's what Jesus says. If you do that, you will be called the sons of God. That's an amazing statement. If you pursue peace in a conflicted set of circumstances, if in the context of your work, when people are getting away with everything and you stay the course and you be the peacemaker. You'd be called the son or daughter of God. Which is to say what? That attitude that resists a revengeful, repaying spirit captures the attention of a watching world. Folks, do you understand? People are dying to see someone like you. They're dying to see someone who is different, who shocks them and shows them that true change is possible in the power of God. And that's the thrust of this text. As far as it depends on you, in the power of the Spirit, as we talked about earlier, you be at peace with all men. Live a restrained life when you are provoked. Don't be part of the problem. Trust in God who gives you freedom to love enemies. And see, folks, if I know that in the end, God has all the bases covered, he will get everything the way that it should be. That's going to give me a tremendous amount of peace and a capacity to love people that I can't love with the love that is not emotional, but it's a choice. And I think that's what Jesus means in Luke chapter 6, 36 and 37. Love your enemies. What does that say? This love is not the natural retaliation. It is a choice to sacrifice for the benefit of others. That is what Jesus Christ has done for each of us. Verses 20 through 21. Let me just read verse 19 as we move forward. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for the wrath of God. I think the idea here is let God be God. Don't be so involved in the circumstance that God does not have room to move in to your life and work. See, we're we're flailing, we're active, and we're we're trying to fix it. And dad's saying, son, step aside. I can take care of that for you. Do you trust him? Here's what God says. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Well, see, when I trust God, what do I do? I say, you know what, God? I'm going to take my hits, and I'm going to leave the results with you. God, give me courage not to retaliate. When everybody around me is saying, you have the right, you can, you should. Now, the Christian response is, you know what? I'm putting that in the hands of Almighty God. He never overreacts. And he's prone to grace. What's our tendency? When we take revenge, we tend to overreact. And we are not at peace with people. In fact, what do we do? We tend to stir up all kinds of unnecessary trouble in our lives. Verse 20, on the contrary, and I love this because I think it's what this whole text is about. It's about a contrary life. It's about a life that is unnatural or supernatural. On the contrary, and then he quotes from Proverbs chapter 25. If your enemy is hungry, ignore him. Folks, listen. Here's what most of us believe. Most of us believe that a non-response is a biblical response. God did not sit in heaven and watch humanity fall into sin and give a passive response. Passive is easy. In my flesh, I can do that. God is not calling you To respond to insult and injury and wounds with passivity. He calls you to a higher standard. If your enemy, the person who has launched a campaign strategically against you, is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. You know what we love? Well, we love Matthew 25. Giving a cup of cold water to a child who has never done us wrong. That's easy. And Jesus says, inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. But I think Jesus would also say, inasmuch as you denied it to your enemies, you denied it to me. Because the love of Jesus is what? Always a love of enemies. And if you've never seen your sin in that way, it's why you don't understand the grace of God. If you've never seen that the love of God for you is a love for rebels, it's a cup of cold water, it is a meal of grace for undeserving people, then you have not trusted in the true grace of God. You see, the true grace of God is active in its love towards rebels. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, God showed his love to us in what? In this, that while we were yet sinners in rebellion against God, Christ died for us. See, God didn't sit passively in heaven watching to see if Adam and Eve would get their act the together. And when they did, He came down and walked with them in the cool of the day. It's not what happened. When they insulted His right to be the Creator, to legislate in the world that He had made, when they insulted that, He moved in their direction with the grace of a sacrifice that restored the relationship. And that's what God calls for from us. You see... The statement from Proverbs is a statement of the gospel. Love of enemies is Jesus. He personifies it. And that kind of love will utterly transform your life. Here's what Paul goes on to say from Proverbs. He says, if you give the cup of cold water to the thirsty enemy, and if you feed the hungry enemy, what are you doing? In doing this, you are heaping coals of fire upon his head. And what do most of us think? I can't wait to smell burning hair and burning flesh, right? Heaping coals of fire. What's the picture? The picture is this. In the Old Testament, New Testament, fire is the judgment of God, but it is also the purifying of God. What's the heaping coals of fire? It's not let them burn. It's let them feel the intense heat of God's love. That love will do what? It will shame them and draw them to Christ. Retaliation will never exalt the cross of Christ because there is no retaliation from the cross. He bore it in silence except for expressions of accomplishment and grace for enemies, for who people had strategized and planned his very end and demise. The Bible says, if God so loved us, can not we love each other? Man, I, honestly, I can say this, I think, I don't know of anybody in this room who is planning my absolute and utter destruction. That's what this text is about. I don't think anybody brought a weapon to church to say, today, I'm taking him out. Got a plan. And God's saying to me, love that person. But you know what he would? He would say that. He would say, Tim, as far as it depends on you, be at peace. Be at peace. Relational tranquility is the goal of the gospel. And that will only happen when I am enamored with the cross of Christ, when I am amazed at the grace of God in Christ. So you look at it you say, well, I I can't do that. I can't. i got people at work. You you don't know the people I work with. You're right, I don't. And some of them may be your enemies. Some of you in this room have recently dealt with enemies. Some of you may feel like that's what you went through this morning at home. Some of you young people may go to school tomorrow thinking, i got enemies. And God's saying, love them, and I'm saying, I don't think so. And God prohibits revenge. God prohibits revenge repayment and he calls you to demonstrate the kind of grace that he has for wicked sinners verse 21 closes this don't be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good i think there is a warning in this statement that evil can track you down and destroy you it can put you in a prison of bitterness and resentment that will gut your life Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, don't be overcome with evil. Overcome evil with good. That is the Gospel. That is what Jesus Christ does on the cross when He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's what Stephen does, the the early martyr in the church, who says as he's being stoned to death, Father, forgive them. And I believe it is that attitude from Him that transformed the heart of the Apostle Paul, who stood giving heart approval to the death of a man was saying, Father, forgive him. Forgive Paul. Forgive him. And when, Jesus, when Paul saw the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus, it was not a far distance for him to travel from where he was to the cross of Christ and the grace of God that delivered him and freed him from a vengeful, bitter spirit. He saw Christ. How do you kill bitterness and become a pursuer of peace? See Jesus. He always gave a cup of cold water. He fed people that would call for his death. Judas. Right? And a denier named Peter. He loved him. Peter, Satan's going to sift you as weed. I have prayed for you. You're going to turn on me. I won't be bitter. I won't be resentful. I will love you. Folks, if you want to change your world, live like that. You want to change your world? Go back to verse 17. Do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Verse 21, don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with that which is honorable. Do good things. Show the love of Christ and you will have opportunities to share the love of Christ. See, what happens is this. We settle for passivity. This text does not leave passivity as an option. It says, do good to all men. Do what is right in the eyes of everyone so that they see that you are showing the love of God, then you will have an opportunity to share the love of God. They go in tandem. They don't travel apart. Acts of love that kill revenge lead to opportunities to share the gospel. They will see your good works. Matthew 5.16 says, And glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what peacemakers do. May when people walk into our church, may they find a place of peace where people get along because they are enamored with the Savior who came and loved and never tolerated revenge. Peter would later say, if you suffer while doing good, endure it. It is commendable before God for to this you were called because Christ suffered and left you an example so you would follow in his steps when they hurled insults at him. He did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. My problem with peace is this. Will people get what they deserve? Peter says Jesus entrusted himself to the one who does justice. Pray that they know grace and live out the grace that you have received. I wonder this morning, are you at peace with God so that you can be a peacemaker? Or is there turmoil? Is there a lack of forgiveness? Is there struggle because of sin? God wants to set you free from bitterness. He doesn't want you to be overcome with good. He wants to overwhelm you with love so that you can overcome evil with good and join Him in showing this kind of love. Therefore, the Bible says in Romans 5.1, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me this morning?